Up next, we would like to welcome back to the stage Dr. John Halamka, Chief Information Officer of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and introduce our speakers, Robert Chu, CEO and CTO of Emblema, as well as Dr. Keith Hanna, founder of IPRD Group, in addition to Catherine Kuzmeskis, co-founder of Simply Vital Health. Well, while the brain trust assembles. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not the last one. Hi, John. How are you doing? Good to see you. Yes. And is Kat here? Uh, yes. Oh, there you are. OK. Hey. <laughs> so why are these three people on the stage right now? Well, each of them either runs a company or has started a company that has had real-world experience with blockchain technologies as part of their architecture. And let's see, uh, you were thinking about an ICO. You're not thinking about an ICO. You are doing an ICO. <laughs> so, you know, again, I think what we've got is our next 30 minutes we'll be looking at three simple questions, which is I'll give them each a couple minutes to introduce themselves and describe what their product or service is. And then we'll ask each of them, well, so, so what did you learn? And what should we do in the future? And what should we not do in the future? Because if there's anything that comes out of today, I hope it's we tell you what not to do. So Kat, why don't you kick us off? Sure. Steal your mic. Hey, I'm Kat Kuzmeskis. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Simply Vital Health, and we've created a healthcare-safe blockchain protocol. It's a public permission blockchain protocol. It's a fork of Ethereum, and it has its own governance and consortium model. But my background is as a hospital administrator at Yale New Haven, and when we were looking at leveraging blockchain as a tool, we anticipated that healthcare was going to want something that was safer to adopt. Uh, we didn't see that it was being built yet, so we took the opportunity to create this protocol and open source it for everybody to use. Uh, as a company, we create our own proprietary software focusing mainly at this point on value-based care that uses blockchain as a tool, um, specifically around audit trails and uh, really cool token models in the future. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Yes, my name is Keith Hanna, uh, heavily technical guy, PhD, computer vision. Uh, found my way with the Gates Foundation. Um, I know something about biometrics, uh, deployed uh, systems in Africa, South Africa, biometric system, and a medical wallet. And uh, so my company, CEO um, of IPRD Group, we're integrating technologies from all over. So I'm interested to talk to all the speakers here and anything that's missing, we develop. And uh, our idea is to put all this into the developing world, allow developers there to go and integrate, use all these capabilities in identity, biometrics, and uh, blockchain, and lots of other technologies too. And just one other comment about Keith, because he and I have traveled to South Africa together. Do, do you know that there are some governments in the world that aren't necessarily trustworthy? I didn't mention the US. <laughs> and so the purpose, as he was getting at, is we do all this work in the developing world with the notion that blockchain can be used as a mechanism of helping trust, you know, helping make sure that data has integrity. Well, Robert, tell us about your company. Uh, thank you, John. So I'm Robert. Uh, I founded Emblema. Uh, we do a healthcare blockchain. I'll tell you more um, what it is. Uh, before that, uh, I was running the uh, technology division at IQVIA. That's one of the world leaders in healthcare data and uh, and the technology. And 
I had a team of about 1,400 developers cranking uh, SaaS solutions for uh, life sciences and regulation. And before that, uh, I was uh, with IBM for 16 years. Um, so we launched, and I think I'm using present, present tense. <laughs> so let me try this. Uh, it is a product that does the following, was launched in, uh, in July publicly. Uh, PatientTruth.com, uh, patient uploads his medical records, uh, you know, controls the sharing of it in terms of authorization. Uh, doctor, you know, takes a look at the data per the authorization, and doctor, the other trail of the access is also in the blockchain. And with this code base, uh, we are running two pilots that we publicly announced, one with a patient advocacy group, another one with a pharma company, and uh, I'll share a little bit more about uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So our first question, first question for the group is, okay, you have all deployed in production, right? So your stuff is running. We know the stuff in South Africa has gone through a number of pilots and iterations. Your product's running. Starting with Kat, now that you know what you know, <laughs> what would you share with the audience of some really important lessons learned as you start a blockchain company? <laughs> yeah, so one of the most important things we learned at the beginning is it's probably better to not tell people that you're creating a blockchain company. <laughs> because it really shouldn't matter that you're using blockchain technology. And this is something that we talk about often. Really what matters is that you've created an application that drives value for whoever your customer is, preferably paying customer, because I think that's often overlooked in healthcare. And once you have created something of value, then you can, you know that you have a customer base and then you can actually grow the thing that you created. Um, and so it became pretty clear that we shouldn't use blockchain. It, cre it creates a little bit of fear in healthcare. Healthcare is typically slower to adopt technology. And so really tailoring the message to make sure that you say, this is the application or platform that we've created. This is the value that you'll drive from it. This is the ROI. This is the cost savings. Oh, by the way, if you're interested, it does use blockchain. We can talk about that if you want. Um, but most of our conversations when we're working with potential clients and clients and customers, we don't even mention blockchain. Uh, it doesn't really matter in the conversation. It's a cool value add in terms of audit trails, um, but we never lead with that in conversation. Yeah. In fact, and correct me if I'm wrong, because when I speak with your engineers, they've actually done what I said to do in the last presentation, which is they created an abstraction layer to say, you know, whether it's a relational technology or a blockchain technology, we have this referential integrity audit trail thing, and we can plug in whatever technology is most appropriate. Yes. Right. Yep. Yeah, so, oops, sorry. Sorry. No, you're fine. So for us, we one thing that's very important that you mentioned is just making sure that it plugs into existing technology as well. We will get to the point where we can create, we as an industry and vertical and blockchain, can create really great models in healthcare that are new and different. Um, but it's important right now that we plug into those existing technologies and can kind of work with what already exists. Great. Well, Keith, talk about what we did with Factum and your experience with blockchain. Yes. Uh, so maybe let's just, playing off that, the perception, I'll begin. I've got technical part and perception on behalf of patients. So perception, uh, we interviewed a lot of patients and healthcare workers. We asked them, what do you think about this, putting your data? One of the advantages of working in Africa, you can do things a um, little faster. Uh, so asking patients what they think about something without going through IRBs was quite useful. 
So one of the interesting things was we put up little things like shields whenever something was authenticated, verified by blockchain, little shield information. We found that was actually much more important than we thought. And the reason is the integrity of the data, the heritage of it, uh, the type of lab, uh, for example, is sort of known to healthcare workers that certain labs are not as good as others. And so actually having a shield where you can click and then you see a heritage of data, uh, to them the value was uh, extremely high. Uh, and there it's a binary decision. Do I do things like retest uh, this person or not? And uh, so it was actually more than just a bumper sticker where you know, we're using security and all that. Uh, and I agree with you what you're saying, blockchain also uh, has some negative connotations there. But uh, so we found that was actually, uh, you know, quite an important finding and uh, being able to click through, prove uh, the heritage also uh, was a critical thing. Um, and uh, so that's an aspect on the, the, the sort of uh, psychology of this, as you called earlier on. The technical side, um, identity. Um, is becoming a critical thing. We had another program, Biometrics. We do want to combine these two things together. But as we're all working to make sure that the data is all nicely secure and audited, a nice audit trail, uh, then one of the challenges then is, well, who is actually uh, starting these transactions? Who is the patient? Who is the healthcare worker? And uh, so uh, that's a critical part, and I don't think there's um, a good answer. We think biometrics is a, a key aspect of that. Um, and we're, we're now going to work on a program to merge this kind of uh, uh, medical wallet blockchain with biometrics. Uh, but the identity aspect was uh, uh, another very key part. I guess, Keith, one other comment I think you found in deployment that it really made little sense to put data in the chain. And that is, right, it was very clear, I mean, by the time we got into it, right. that it was just a thin layer outside the data layer for trust. Absolutely. So th this was a prototype program, and so one of the advantages of these prototype-type systems to begin with is you can try things. And yes, on the face of it, uh, there seems to be some advantage. Uh, and I'll, just like the very first panel, I will talk about the potentially positive things of putting data there um, and then argue against myself. But the, the positive reasons <laughs> is that uh, data is readily available. In Africa, uh, a lot of institutions are not trusted. Uh, they're not even present. So there's potentially some advantages of having critical data out there. Um, but then to argue against myself, uh, which I think outweighs the positives, uh, having that critical data, first the, uh, the rates, the transaction rates that we tested were really very low and they are not gonna scale well. So no Moore's law is going to increase uh, or reduce latencies between devices. Uh, so we find that's not a very fruitful way. And then again, from the, uh, the, the sort of psychiatric uh, viewpoint, having say, for example, all your biometric data out there, even although it's not useful uh, halfway across the planet, uh, that doesn't sit well, uh, uh, both in terms of the culture, to your point, John, that uh, people need to accept this. And uh, uh, two weeks ago, we were at a Pew uh, patient tracking uh, study, and having your, your data everywhere uh, is not one of the findings that the Pew people found. Um, it, having your data just where it needs to be, and no more, no less, um, maybe with some redundancy. Um, 
that is consistent with, with what we found. So we ended up uh, using blockchain uh, for validating the data. We did test though, and uh, that is something I would not recommend. <laughs> but Robert, you know, my sense is, is that as you have started a company, and you have, like many companies, looked at business models and customers and value streams, my sense is you've actually pivoted a little bit, that you've narrowed your focus. So tell us about what you've learned. Yes, yeah, quite a lot, actually. I, I think, uh, you know, out of our public launch in July, I think the, <laughs> it's a little extreme what I'm going to say, but uh, if you're a patient, you're healthy, you're stable in a chronic condition, really, you really don't need the service, you know, having aggregation of your health data and sharing, you know, you're going to be okay. Um, so therefore, you know, this, the, the, um, the revenue flows out of this use case, if you try to sell this to a hospital, to a health network, I think is very tough, you know, a long sales cycle, you know, not a lot, not a lot of patient traction. So therefore, the pivot we did pretty quickly was to use actually the data, the patient data, as a means to accelerate uh, availability of new treatments. So this is regulatory, you know, between the FDA and the pharma companies, or the megtech device companies, as parts of the 21st century is correct. When you have good real-world evidence, meaning in real life, the patient in the clinical trial, what is he taking, what kind of encounters is he having, so that the FDA can better you know, measure the benefits and the risk of this new treatment, it can accelerate the treatment. And there, there's definitely uh, money because a pharma company you know, are very, very eager to accelerate their uh, uh, market availability. And the two pilots we're doing actually you know, are, are to prove this in real life. Uh, the first one is on the uh, supply side of the data, if I may say so, which is the patient advocacy group and the patients. And here we're definitely gonna go after rare disease or limited sets of uh, uh, patients in the sense that these are patients that are, have a lot of unmet medical needs, uh, kind of suffering, they feel a little bit you know, abandoned. And we measured through this pilot with cysticfibrosis.com. This is a 1200 patient community. Uh, the prevalence of cystic fibrosis US is 29,000, so it's not bad. And 98% of those guys, plus the caregivers, which are the parents, are willing to share the data for acceleration of clinical research. And half of them, 53%, want to be paid because it's going to require work. You know, they're going to connect their spire meters, they're going to upload their CCDs, their medical records, they're going to do patient-reported outcomes, what's my weight, what's my calorie intake daily, you know. So that's good. I think we're pretty much uh, tested the engagement side. Uh, so again, big, large chronic diseases, you know, well-treated. I don't think there's a lot of traction, but on the supply side, those populations are very interesting. And then the other pilot we're doing is on the demand side, uh, which is with this pharma company uh, out of France called Pierre Fabre. Uh, this is a mid-sized pharma company, around $2 billion of revenue. And this is to use the data that's being supplied by the patient with full consent. Of course, these identified, you know, with all the right GDPR and HIPAA thing, you know, um, to use this as faster and more precise real-world evidence for submission to the FDA. Uh, so that's something we, we started then. Actually, we, uh, we got on our advisory board the former R&D bioinformatics of Hans Simonian to help integrate and interface you know, our blockchain and the data and to really ingest this in real time to the FDA evaluation. Uh, so that's good. So we're going to test. So this is just starting, and uh, I'll keep you updated on the progress on the demand side and the regulatory you know, advantages of it. So that's a use case we're focusing on in the learning so far. So something Robert said that was very wise that I should probably share with you all. I have been the purchaser of $100 million of healthcare IT for academic medical centers for 25 years. So if you as a startup, you as a firm, want to sell to an academic medical center, a few bits of advice. There is no decision maker, period. There are a thousand decision makers. 
More likely, there's a thousand points of veto. Uh, it's really hard to get a sales cycle under 18 months and to convince a conservative healthcare organization about an emerging technology is just tough. I was joking with our CFO the other day, we're gonna be putting Bitcoin dispensers in the hospitals. So you can pay your bills with crypto. And it's like, mm, no. But so cat. Now, if we think of the three folks up here, you know, for-profit, non-profit, for-profit. So each of you have explored use cases. And why don't we start with a positive? It was like sort of the debate this morning. You know, what has truly in your mind demonstrated value of using a blockchain as part of a product? So for us, using blockchain as a product the value that we've seen and continue to see, which is actually because people are coming to us with this request, is the ability to govern access to data. Um, and this actually, we do hear a lot of conversations about patients governing access to data, but this is actually the enterprise that's interested in governing access to data. Uh, so this is a, um, I, former administrator at DaVita realized that they could license their data to pharmaceutical companies, and he did that in a transactional way. Um, but people have come to us to say, or they, he did it in like one, one shot and sent all the data in. People have come to us and they would rather do this in a transactional way. So I'd, be, I'd like to be able to govern my access over time. Um, instead of sending one big bunch at a time, maybe as data comes through, sending it over as it goes in a transactional way. Um, but being able to track where it goes, how they use it, and where it originated from. And being able to do that in a way that's trackable is where we see a lot of the value in blockchain technology, and it's what people are coming to us in interest of. Uh, and I think that speaks more volume and value than us going out there and trying to say this message. Um, it's becoming very clear that there is a strong interest in being able to move data around in a much more efficient way, um, licensing, sharing, all of these really great models around um, data access. Mm -hmm. and so, so let me just amplify what she just said. So I've had to deal with consent models of data flow in different government contexts for many, many years. Challenges, regulation changes, patient preference policy changes. Uh, maybe you felt great about Facebook a year ago, but not so much today, right? And so how is it that a patient a provider or an institution can articulate a set of desirable consequences. And then as we share the data in perpetuity that we try to adhere to those preferences, whatever they are. And so let me just give you, it's gonna sound like a very strange example, but I think it's really along the lines of what Kat is saying. In the Obama administration, I was asked to develop the national standards for gender and sexual orientation. And I put together 100 experts. We took hours and hours of testimony. And the assumption was, at the end of it, we could come up with some list. You can't, is the answer. You can't. Uh, and in fact, what you can come up with is a series of questions for which the patient provides an answer. And then you can respect whatever their belief system is based on the answer to those questions. But you just can't categorize them as A, B, and C. It just doesn't work. And I think of the consent kinds of things for data exchange and sharing are going to be similar to that. We'll codify the preferences, and as policy changes or as culture changes, we'll continue to respect them. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, Keith, what have you learned? Yes. Well, I mean, consistent there. I mean, we interviewed all these patients and healthcare workers in Africa. So the permissioning, uh, granting access between clinics for patients and for patients to see their data and vice versa, uh, that we see as being a very important uh, aspect. Um, you know, we did find that in Africa they did want simplicity in terms of, and I think that was to do with the types of uh, the people were perhaps not as uh, used to such complex technology. The phones and usage are really very simple and so very difficult to work with. So we had things like uh, uh, all access uh, for a clinician or 30-day access. That was one of the uh, conclusions there. But very powerful. People felt, patients felt, that uh, when they were empowered to uh, provide that, that access to permissions or, or, or clinicians asked the patient for information, uh, they felt that uh, you know, this was secure, ironically. By being asked, they felt that there was control, so they were more willing to give very personal information like HIV and TB uh, information to a range of people. And I, I think uh, what's going to matter is as that information gets passed from uh, clinician one to clinician two, uh, mechanisms for the patient to allow that to happen, so referrals, etc. Where it gets complicated, that's where I think blockchain could certainly come in. Um, and then the, the second point is what I mentioned earlier, the heritage of data, uh, especially important uh, because treatment for these chronic type diseases that we were looking at very much depends on what happened before. And you really need to be certain about that. And the definition of certain means knowing a lot of things, including who the person is, but which lab, as I mentioned before, what type of tests were done, a range of things. And only, and, uh, and only if the new clinician knows with certainty all the other aspects will they uh, then not, say, do a retest, for example, which will save uh, a lot of expense and a lot of uh, time and effort. So, uh, so those are the two aspects I think we find so, Robert, the use cases that you found to be of real value. Yeah, I think so. I think it's promising. I think, um, you know, to your initial question, what's the, um, what's the beauty of blockchain? I think it's around the trusted sharing, you know, aspect to it. And, um, you know, one example I think was pretty revealing on how strategic this is for the industry, the life sciences industry. Uh, so we did some consulting work for uh, Top 5, which I can't name, it's not public. Uh, but basically, the idea is to do this pilot with the FDA. You guys share in real time through blockchain, you know, real-world evidence, okay? And the decision to do the pilot went up to the CEO of this company. This is like, uh, you know, $30 billion revenue company. And why did it go up to the CEO? Because it's a reputation thing. You share the whole thing with the FDA in real time. You know explicitly the, consent, the patient is consented before. That's great. So it's great because you're transparent. You know, you share everything with the FDA. You may disagree on the meaning of it and the side effect and the efficiency, but you share. The other side of the coin is that if there's a side effect that comes up, you know, you're kind of caught off guard and you don't have time to prepare. Whereas in the old world, you know, the pharma does this data, massages a little bit, you know, I used to do this for a company. Not in the wrong sense, don't take me wrong, but you have time, you know, to kind of, okay, what is this really going on? Should we show it to the FDA? Yes, no, we have time. In this new world, you don't have time. So the advantage is a reputation thing. The disadvantage could be, whoa, if something goes wrong, you can really blow up and we don't have time to react. And it shows how strategic, you know, this, these kind of decisions are going to be made, you know, by the top guys in the, in the life science industry. And by the way, by the regulation too. 
And so just to again amplify what he said, which is I would argue there's something worldwide more important than HIPAA or GDPR, and that's the New York Times, right? I mean, I imagine you show up as having done something that looks supremely stupid in the media of your country, whatever that is. Your reputational loss is probably worse than any fine that can come from a government entity. Well, maybe GDPR is pretty bad. I mean, that's 4% of worldwide <laughs> revenues. But, and so this idea, so let's just say, I mean, I don't know, because you're an international guy, how you think pharma is perceived in many countries. But in the US, if you said, oh, we're going to sell your, your data cat to a pharma company, people would say, oh, the optics are not very good. <laughs> Whereas if what I said was, we've got this chain of trust as to the data was produced here and the patient consented there, and I can reproduce absolutely for anyone who asks the fact that Kat actually gave her data to a pharma company because she's a medical altruist and that was something she she thought was in the interest of society. So now I'm going to ask you know our final question and it's the hardest one probably. So Kat, in your experience, what are the use cases we should just not do? The things we shouldn't pursue, where maybe two years ago blockchain we thought was, uh, you know, had promise, but now maybe we just don't want to go there. I know it's hard, so maybe, maybe the answers aren't crisp. Yeah, this, is, this one is hard. And it's funny because we always talk about blockchain not being a panacea, but actually identifying ways that we don't recommend blockchain to be used as a tool. Um, so this may be unpopular in the crowd, but I think when we first started talking about blockchain two years ago, everybody wanted to rip and replace electronic medical records, like get rid of Epic, get rid of Cerner, and use blockchain as a tool. And I actually don't think that that makes sense at this time, where we are in our healthcare society, where having been a hospital administrator, there's a lot of really important information that comes through an electronic medical record. Yes, it's the, there's patient information. Yes, there's information that the physicians use. Yes, there's communication. But there are a lot of real-time decisions that are being made at a hospital based based on that information. And not having access to that information can actually affect hospital operations. So some of the things that we were measuring at Yale New Haven were things, quality measures like sepsis or readmissions or information that helps to identify whether or not we're providing a safe place of care for patients. So I'm not certain that blockchain will completely rip and release electronic medical records. I actually don't think that that's a good idea. I think that blockchain can be used as a tool to create a more efficient system, but I think the, not, the notion that everybody started out with that we're going to completely get rid of Epic and use a blockchain solution, I actually don't think that that is a good idea, and instead we find ways to work together. Very well said. I agree. Right. And yes, I, I would uh, really two points. You know, one is really very similar, Kat, the, the same idea. What we see, uh, again, blockchain, when we began this program, a lot of excitement and exactly what you're saying, let's rip up all this because our records are really poor and so this, this could help. But in fact, uh, they do have some records. They're very diverse, however. And I, I think they always will be, uh, my opinion. So pharmacy records, there's uh, you know, the clinical records, there's appointment records. And putting them all in the same system, it, it sounds like asking for trouble that all of these very different uh, systems are all together. But having something like blockchain that does link them together 
uh, and point, that does seem to be the right thing to do. I know the question is what not to do, but what not to do is to rip up your, your, your sort of visitor system and put something in and make it, make it talk. So that's, uh, I think, an important point. Uh, and then a final point is storing data on blockchain. Interesting, exciting, too exciting, and no, I wouldn't, wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> well, Robert. Okay, um, I think one thing I would not uh, recommend because we did it and uh, it didn't go well. So we implemented in our public release uh, uh, ERC20 token. So that's a token that's living on the Ethereum mainnet. It's called the EBL emblema. And we wanted to use this as a means of payment, right? Uh, so for example, we would give a reward, uh, 120 tokens to patients if they upload a new record. Patients refer to a new patient, we give 10 tokens and so on and so forth. And, and uh, you know, we found out, uh, uh, I think we have about 120 patients. Only one patient out of 10 is able to open a wallet. So you got to go to my Ethereum wallet and there's this private key business, you know, and then you have to put the MetaMask uh, plugin in Chrome. Uh, you know, it's a disaster from a usability standpoint. So not my best work, I can tell you. Uh, and, and then, you know, all this business around the gas fee that goes up and down and the gas price goes up because you have to pay something. And when the network is congested, the mainnet, so you can't predict it, you know, because you have people, some guy in uh, China launching an ICO with congested network. And we added up, you know, for uh, for our transaction, like $2 of worship tokens, you know, the transaction fee was $1.5. <laughs> so then patients started to, uh, you know, to complain, what's going on? <laughs> I paid more than uh, than what I received and so on. So, so I think in terms of payment system using, uh, you know, public uh, Ethereum uh, token, uh, maybe we didn't do it the right way. Uh, I'm very humble around this, but uh, definitely this is something that needs to be fixed and we're working on this. Well, since our timekeeper is, is ruthless, I'm just going to do a summary of what everyone just said over the last half hour, and that is absolutely blockchain is good for data integrity and trust, auditability and consent. Absolutely blockchain is not a database. It is not a schema. It has no query capability. It doesn't have transactional throughput. Be exceedingly careful of linking an initial coin offering to your blockchain offering because they're two separate concepts. And finally, don't expect an 85-year-old to be able to get a token in this lifetime. It's just too hard. So thanks very much, and I think we have another panel to follow. Thank you.